Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt, the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and I have some good news to you today. God likes to use imperfect people. If that's good news to you, would you say amen? amen. Yeah, because uh, we are a bunch of imperfect folks. In fact, why don't you turn to the person next to you and go, sorry to tell you this, but you're not perfect. Just do it right now. Sorry to tell you this, you're not perfect. Yeah, some of you said, I'm not sorry to tell you this, you're not perfect, okay? But that's true. This whole series is about imperfect does not mean unusable, should encourage us. We're going through some of the heroes of the Bible. Last week we went through Moses, we talked about his life. Today we're going to take a snapshot, hit some of the highlights and lowlights of King David's life, and you're going to see he was far from perfect, but God used him anyway. And that's good news, because God's going to use us anyway too, and there's some practical steps along the way, some things we can do to make sure we're more usable. We've got God's word on it. I want to share that with you today. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump right in. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I want to thank you for all the folks who are watching online. I want to thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And Lord, from your word, we learn how to live out our faith. And Lord, in the good times and the bad, and we take great comfort in knowing that you know exactly how weak we are and you love us anyway. So Lord, I pray that you will encourage each of us today, that you will speak and move me out of the way. In the wonderful name of Jesus, the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, I pray these things. Amen. Hey, if you need a pen, you didn't grab it on the way in, uh, raise your hand. You'll need it by the time we're done. There's some things you want to take notes on here. Point one just says what I started with. God chooses, um, that's outlined in your bulletin here, God chooses to use imperfect people to carry out his work. God chooses to do this. 1 Corinthians 1, remember, dear brothers and sisters, Paul's writing these early believers in Corinth there. Few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things. Listen to this. God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Did you know that God loves to use people whom other people think aren't fit for the job? There are so many times when I don't think I'm fit for what God calls me to do. You probably feel the same way. And God would say, well, that makes you perfectly usable. I love to use people whom other people think aren't qualified. Hmm. Now, it's important here to understand something. This will fit into when we talk about David's life a lot. God doesn't evaluate people by outward appearances. We do. We evaluate people by the way they dress, by how tall they are, uh, by their hair, by their jewelry, by their car. We evaluate people by all kinds of external things that don't have a lick to do with their character. And God looks at the heart. The Lord said to Samuel, the Lord doesn't see things the way uh, you see them. People judge by outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. He was talking to Samuel, who was about to anoint the next king over Israel. Saul had failed, and Samuel was sent to the home of a man named Jesse to anoint one of his sons. And God didn't tell him which one. And so Jesse paraded all of his sons, seven of them, in front of Samuel and each one, the Lord said, not him, not him, not him, not him. And he said, well, do you have any others? Yeah, well, there's David. He's out tending the sheep and the goats. Well, go get him. And the Lord said, that's the one. Samuel thought it was one of the others. His older brother Eliab was tall and handsome, looked like a king. Now, that's a king. The Lord said, no, no, no. You look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And that had been Saul's problem. Saul looked like a king. He just wouldn't obey God. And so today... I want to remind us that God loves to use imperfect people because he sees things in us that we don't see. Not only where we are now, but where we'll be someday. He sees potential. He knows the final outcome, and we don't know any of it. And that's why 
We have to take great comfort in this. And we can say, well, God, why on earth would you choose me? He can see what we're going to be 20 years from now. You know, if you want to understand how wrong we can be, I just remind you of the story of Ron Wayne. And you go, John Wayne? No, Ron Wayne, okay? And you go, I don't know who that is. Nobody does. And the reason why is because of a decision he made back in 1976. He was one of the, there were three founders, Steve Jobs, um, Steve Wojowski, I probably butchered that. I'm sorry? Wozniak, thank you. Yeah, sorry, Steve Wozniak. <laughs> uh, the two Steves, and this was their lawyer, Ron Wayne. Uh, he had a 10% share in Apple, but he found Steve's jobs too difficult to work with, so um, after they got the company started in 1976, he sold his 10% share of Apple for $800. Today, it would be worth $35 billion. That was a big mistake. <laughs> that was poor investing. He said, in an interview, he said, well, he just found Steve Jobs too hard to get along with. It's like, I think you could put up with a lot for $35 billion, okay? $35 billion. But he didn't see it. It was just this little startup company with a guy that's hard to work with. Eh, 800 bucks, that's good. And that's the way we tend to judge ourselves. We look in the mirror and go, oh, who are you? I can't do anything. It's the way we tend to judge others. Who are they? God can't use them. Wrong. And so God calls all kinds of surprising people to carry out his work. Here we go with David. So David was anointed king, but before he became king, he won a great victory. Point two, he was only a shepherd boy when God used him to kill a giant. He was still tending his dad's sheep. His big brothers, who looked more like the king, they'd gone off to fight the Philistines in a battle. Philistines on one side of a valley, the Israelites on another. And every day, for 40 days, there'd be a champion among the Philistines who would trot down to the bottom of the valley and say, hey, we don't have to fight all of us. Let's just fight one-on-one. You choose your best fighter to come fight me. I'm the best fighter of the Philistines. And whoever kills the other opponent, his side loses. And we'll just surrender. We'll just call it an even fight. Representative conflict right here in the middle of the valley. Problem was, is that this Philistine who came out and issued the challenge was over nine feet tall. Just a freak of nature with an attitude. His name was Goliath. And he defied the armies of Israel. Not only the armies, but the God of Israel in whom they trusted. And so for over a month, the standoff continued. Neither side advanced. But the morale of the Israelites got lower and lower as every day this giant made fun of them and of God. And then David showed up. He left the sheep and the goats and went out to give some food and supplies to his brothers. He heard the taunting. He goes, how come nobody's taking him on? I'll take him on. David trusted the Lord. In fact, we're jumping in here now into 1 Samuel 17. Uh, it's 1 Samuel 17, 33 is where it starts. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told King Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. That's a tough shepherd boy right there. Okay, I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. I've got a little ellipsis there. I skipped forward a few verses where David's gone out. He has... Hasn't put on any of the king's armor. He goes, no, I can't fight in these. I'm just going to take the tools I know. Took his, he loaded up some stones and he had his sling. And he went out to meet the giant. And here's what Goliath said to him. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. 
David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. But not with sword or spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. The story of David and Goliath isn't a story of a little guy winning over a big guy by sheer determination. If you've ever heard that, then you didn't understand the story at all. This is a story of God rescuing his people through a little boy because he loves to use imperfect people, people you would never expect to carry out his plans. And David said, I'm perfect to defeat you because no one will give me credit for this. They'll have to give credit to you. And that's what happened. I mean, that's why God loves to use a little boy to kill a giant. If you're not familiar with how the story ended, let me summarize. The giant came at him with all his superior armor and superior strength, and David ran right at him and took a sling Put it in, um, took a stone, put it in his sling, took that rock, and God guided it like a missile, and it landed right in the giant's forehead. And then Goliath stumbled and fell face down right in front of David. David ran over and took out his sword and cut off his head. That's one tough shepherd boy, I'm telling you. But David said, look, this is the Lord's battle. Now, you're going to see all through this that when you and I trust in the Lord and bring glory to him, well, it would make perfect sense then that he chooses people who aren't necessarily the strongest or the smartest or the prettiest or the tallest. He'd choose people that people go, well, it must be the Lord. I mean, it couldn't have been John Schmidt. <laughs> it had to be God. Yes. And that's why he loves to use imperfect people. Now, there's a life application here. We're never too young for God to use us. Last week, we talked about Moses. God called Moses when he was 80, and we went through all the litany of excuses that Moses made. He thought he was past his prime. He didn't speak well enough, didn't want to go, all these things. And one of the things we brought out last week was, we're never too old for God to use us. Here's the other side. We're never too young for God to use us. He loved using a little shepherd boy. Don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Be an example to all the believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, your purity. Be an example. So don't use the excuse, well, I'd be more involved if I was older and more mature. No, sometimes it takes somebody who is um, just young and vibrant and committed to the Lord to remind some of those of us who've been around for a long time, hey, let's not chicken out when the things get tough. Let's not give up on things. Let's pray and trust God. And that's what's so important. Point three. Well, God elevated David to king over his people because David trusted and obeyed him. David trusted and obeyed. The people had begged for this. is Acts 13, kind of summarizing a short history of Israel here, if you will. The people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, who reigned for 40 years. And then God removed Saul and placed him with David, a man about whom God had said, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. And that's really the key. Doing what God wants you to do. Even when he was a shepherd boy, you'd think, well, he's the least likely candidate to win a battle over a, an experienced warrior, especially a giant. No, he trusted God, and God was stronger. So here's a life application for you and me. God wants John to trust and obey him. God wants you to trust and obey him. He wants us. Put your name in there. Well, you can put my name in there. That's true. 
God does want John to trust and obey him. He also wants you to do that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he'll show you which path to take. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And can we read together that last sentence starting with seek his will in all you do? Read it out loud with me, please. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. If you and I will surrender and not trust to our own understanding, God will show us the direction. David was confident of this. The Lord will give me the victory. You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, and that's all very impressive. But let me tell you what. I serve the God of heaven who made heavens and earth, and he will win the battle today. What if we approached our decisions that way? My decisions. Your decisions. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Because if we're praying about this and God shows us a way that we've never thought of, he's going to ask us to trust him in this. Or if he brings counsel into our lives, say, hey, you got to rethink this. You're wrong. Well, we humble ourselves and trust him. David lived that way, and God elevated him to king because of it. And if the story ended right there, you go, wow, John, I know the kid was young and stuff, but he sounds pretty perfect to me. Well, his life took a turn after he got into the palace that was very unfortunate because he sinned against God and tried to cover it up. This is point four. After David became king, he committed adultery and attempted to cover it up with murder. Here's how that all happened. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, who was the commander of his army, out with the king's men and the whole army of Israel. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And Uriah was even one of his soldiers who was fighting on his behalf. Well, then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, he slept with her, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David lusts after another man's wife, takes her into the palace because he can, because he's king. She comes in, there's a tryst, and she becomes pregnant. And David, trying to cover it up, brings Uriah, her husband, home from the battle, tries to give him some time off. Hey, you've been a great soldier, go home to your wife, even tries to get him drunk. When he refuses to go home, but Uriah won't dishonor his men, said, how can I go home and be with my wife when the rest of my unit's out in battle? And so finally, David resorts to something terrible, and this is where we pick it up again. David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and he sent it with Uriah when he sent him back to the front. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. I mean commander of the army read this message from the king handed to him by the man whom he was supposed to secretly make sure was murdered. He followed orders and Uriah died. And then King David in an act of public sympathy took the poor widow of this valiant soldier who had died in battle and took, him into, took her into the palace to be his wife. He would look after her, especially finding out she was pregnant. What a great king. One problem, God saw the whole thing. Note, David's sin and cover-up set in motion terrible consequences. God sent a prophet, Nathan, to David, and he delivered this message. 
The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house, his wives, the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I'd have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I'll give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I'll make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. And all those words came true in David's lifetime. One of his own sons, Absalom, rebelled against him and did exactly that with David's wives. David almost lost his life in Absalom's rebellion, and many people were killed. It was all because of David's secret sin and then cover-up instead of confessing it right away. Well, there's a life application for you and me. Sin always has consequences. I mean, I don't ever want to miss this. Because there are so many times we think, well, I can sin, but it's only just one little part of my life. And, you know, if I sin a little bit, it's not like it's a big deal. But here's the funny thing. The Bible tells us that there is, a, there is a constant rule that's at play in the world, and that's this. Whatever we sow, that's what we reap. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. When we intentionally go against God's word, when we do things we know are wrong, we say things we know we shouldn't say, when we refuse to do the things we know we need to do, there will be consequences that we set in motion. It's just like planting crops. Many of you know I grew up on a farm in Kansas. We had a big garden. And about this time of year, my mom was giving us cantaloupe at every meal. I mean, she'd plant those things, and the joke was you plant it in the garden and run for your life and hoping the cantaloupe don't overtake you before you hit the road, okay? Because they would just grow so fast and all these things. But the funny thing about this garden, we, she grew cantaloupe and squash and corn and all kinds of amazing vegetables. But the funny thing was, every time we'd plant a corn seed, the only thing that came up was corn. If we planted seeds for cucumbers, cucumbers came up. Never squash, never strawberries. Just the seed we planted, that's what grew. And you go, well, John, that's normal. Yeah, but when it comes to sin, we act like that doesn't happen. We act like we can sin again and again and again and never expect any consequences. And we're shocked when we have gossiped about others, and then one day we find out they're gossiping about us. We are shocked. I can't believe they did that. Why not? I just never thought that would happen. And what the Bible warns us of through stories like David, through this passage in Galatians, is the reason God wants us to love and trust him is He knows the best way for our life. I mean, that's what we read here, that if we seek his will in all we do, he'll show us the right path to take. We go our own way, our own selfish way. We're going to set in motion consequences we never want. It's like planting a crop of something you don't want to grow, that you don't want to grow. We can sow all kinds of wild oats and then spend years praying for crop failure. Oh, Lord, please let there be a blight. And the Lord wants us to trust him. And when David trusted him, God blessed him. When he went his own way and rebelled against him and tried to cover it up, oh, he set in motion all sorts of painful consequences. 
That's what I'm trying to tell you, to show you here, he was far from perfect. Now, if I ended there, you go, man, John, you started out good. Now I'm depressed. How'd this turn out? Point five, David confessed his sin and was forgiven by God. Here's the great thing about David. When Nathan came and confronted him and said, this is what's going to happen, immediately, this is in that same conversation, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. The child that had been conceived between he and Bathsheba did die. But David did not. David wrote several passages in the Psalms. He wrote several Psalms that talked about the necessary or the necessity for confession. Psalm 32, David. This is the life application that we must confess our sins. Stop trying to hide them. As soon as David did this, he did the right thing. Here's what David said. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what uh, joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me, and my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there's still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. You say, how foolish I was when I ran away from you. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. When I refused to confess my sin, all my strength was sapped by a guilty conscience. And the whole point of David confessing his sin was that it restored his right relationship with God. Can I tell you today, can I remind you today that God is loving and gracious and kind? And when we've blown it and sinned against him and our consciences are sore with guilt, and we've realized how foolish we've been, come back to God and say, God, I'm sorry I blew it. I'm sorry I did this. Please forgive me. Show me the right way to go. If we repent of our sins and turn around, if we confess our sins and repent and turn around, God can do amazing things in our lives. And so even though David had to live through some painful consequences, and again, he was far from perfect, this brings us to point six, God blessed him with an amazing blessing. In spite of David's sin, Jesus the Messiah was born into David's family line. God had promised this to him years earlier before the affair with Bathsheba had ever happened. And God honored that promise in spite of the fact that David had committed adultery and tried to cover it up with murder. This is what he had sent Nathan to say on another occasion, 2 Samuel 7. Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings, and your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure forever. David had been wanting to build a temple for the Lord. So, Lord, I want to build a house for you. And the prophet came and said, no, David, the Lord doesn't want you to build a house for him. He wants to build a house for you. A dynasty of kings that will last forever. The next passage you'll hear read at Christmas time all the time. And we don't realize that this is when this was fulfilled when Jesus was born. Ultimately fulfilled when Jesus was born. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be very great and be called the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. And it was fulfilling that promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. A less than perfect man. And if you study the genealogy of Jesus, that line passed through Solomon, the next child that was given between the relationship between Bathsheba and David. Wait a minute. So Jesus came into the world in the family line of a man who committed adultery and murder and through the line of another child that was born between those two people, between David and Bathsheba? Why would God do that? That would be the least likely thing unless, of course, Jesus, whose name means that God saves, he's come to save us, from our sins, would be born into a family line that could be traced back to sin, to adultery, and even murder. Now think about this. I discussed this um, after the, in between services, or after our first service, one of the people came to me and said, John, I'm so glad you're talking about this because this is exactly what I've experienced in my life. I thought I had blown it with sins I had committed in my life. I thought God could never forgive me and never use me again. He said, but God has completely changed my life. Maybe you've given up too. Well, there was a time when God could use me. Think about David. There was a time when God used me to kill the giant, but now I've blown it. He'll never love me again. That's not the way David thought. That's a lie of the devil who would love to tempt us to sin and then keep us far from God by telling us another lie. First of all, he'll tell us the lie that sin doesn't matter and you won't have to pay the consequences. But then the second lie is, don't run to God. God will never forgive you. God hates you now. He can never use you. Your time for usefulness was done. It's long ago. You're imperfect. You're damaged. You're bruised fruit. You're gone. And yet the Bible tells us nothing could be further from the truth. Do you know that some of the most powerful witnesses we have in this church for helping people escape the clutches for, from alcoholism are people who have been alcoholics and God has rescued them? Do you know the people who have the biggest impact on young women who find themselves in a crisis pregnancy, sometimes because of very immoral lifestyles, that the very people God uses are people whom he has forgiven and walked through that, who have walked through that circumstance and by God's grace have experienced his forgiveness. They're the best people to help women who went through crisis pregnancies themselves? I mean, it makes sense, right? But John, they were sinners. Yes. And God forgave them. David was a sinner. Yes. And God forgave him. And Jesus came through his family line anyway. This is why we come to Christ. This is the last life application in your outline God is gracious and kind, and he will use us in spite of our sins if we return to him. This is why we want to return to him, restore the relationship, and say, God, even when I fail, you sent your son into the world to save sinners. You're gracious and kind. Here's David again, Psalm 51, where he's talking about precisely what's going on in his heart when he committed the affair with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. 
Purify me from my sins. I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then listen to this. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. David didn't give up. He knew if God cleansed him and restored him, then God could use him again. And that was his biggest desire. You don't desire a sacrifice, or I'd offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. David was far from perfect. He was too young to be a victor on on the field of battle, yet he won the biggest battle anyone could remember. He was an adulterer and a murderer, and yet God forgave him, and Jesus came from his family line. If we repent of our sins and return to God, what can he do with us? Imperfect does not mean unusable. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today and to discuss a few of these things. And Father, I pray that today we would not run from you. If there are things that need to be changed in our lives, I pray that we would not hide our sins, try to cover them up. You see them anyway. And we just come back to you and say, God, help me, forgive me, restore me. Wash me clean. Then I can tell others about you. In fact, I can even use the very thing in my life that's causing me trouble to bring you glory. Oh, hear our prayers, Father. We pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, to close our service today, um, Nick, you've got a song that you've been singing uh, that you were going to sing for us here uh, at the end of closing song. What's the name of it? Give Us Clean Hands. Yeah, Give Us uh, Clean Hands. And the whole idea is um, that I want Nick to do this because...